I will be reading the King James Version of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And it reads, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Well, folks, I did it again. I went by Jackson Hospital the other day to check on Donna Bentley. I had forgotten what her room number was, and so I checked at the front desk, the information desk. I found that works a whole lot better than just randomly knocking on doors, shouting out a person's name. So I said, could you give me the room number for Donna Bentley, please? Or at least that's what I thought I said. The woman who was sitting behind the desk began to laugh, and she said, did you mean Donna Bentley? And I said, yes, what did I say? She said, Dirks Bentley. <laughs> By this time, she's laughing uncontrollably. And I said, uh, no, Donna Bentley is who I'm, I'm looking for. But while I'm here, how's Dirks doing? <laughs> and she said, are you family? And I said, no, I'm not. She said, I'm sorry, I can't give you that information. <laughs> Oh, my. So I suspect that Dirks is doing fine and continuing his career, so just for, for your assurance. A while back, a group of young people descended on Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They were doing a religious survey that largely was constituted of one major question. And the question that they asked literally thousands of people in that metro area was, if the Lord should come today or if you should die tonight, do you have the assurance that you would spend eternity in heaven? The question frightened some, it amused some, it stunned some, and to be quite honest, it angered just a few. But it's still an interesting question, isn't it? And one that I think that every sensitive individual, at least sensitive about spiritual matters and the reality of eternity, needs to ask himself or herself. It's undoubtedly a very important question. So. The question I want to begin tonight by asking you is, how would you answer that question? That is, are you confident of your salvation? Or maybe are there gnawing doubts in your mind and in your heart about where you would spend eternity if you were to die within the next 24 hours? Someone's aptly said that the real question isn't, if you died today, where would you be tomorrow? The more immediate and urgent question is, if you died yesterday, where would you be right now? And that really is a question that puts us face to face with eternity. In our more thoughtful moments, we know that eternal life is the main thing. In fact, we know it is really the only thing that matters because it is the question and it is the issue that we will carry with us out of this life into the next. And so, in our more thoughtful moments, we understand how important that question is. We're like the man who came to Jesus one day, recorded in Matthew 19, 16, among other places, who asked him, because obviously this was a, an issue, a, a question that he had on his heart, he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And I sense that like that man, we may also have at least some understanding that Jesus is the only one who can give us an adequate answer to that question. What must I do that I may have eternal life? And so we're interested in what Jesus said. 
We know, as we talked about this morning, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, to Nicodemus, Jesus' answer to that question was, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born to the water and the Spirit, he not entered the kingdom of heaven. And so it is that we must be born of the water and the Spirit, Jesus said, in order to enact spiritually the, the new birth that puts us into God's spiritual family. But many of us have done that. That's the issue that I really want us to address tonight for the next few minutes. We've been born of the water and the Spirit. We can probably circle the day on the calendar when we were reborn spiritually speaking. We know our spiritual birthday. We've experienced that new birth. We've been baptized into Christ. We've been raised from that burial in water to walk in the newness of life that Paul describes in Romans 6 and verse 4. But somehow the newness of the new birth has worn off. And we've allowed sin to creep back into our lives. And those things that we had committed and determined when we became New Testament Christians that we were never going to practice again, we find them entering our lives, going back to the old habits, and so we feel a, a very real uneasiness about our salvation. And we have to be honest with ourselves that in the quiet moments of our lives, we, we ponder whether or not we really are in a healthy relationship with the God who made us and the God who someday will judge us in eternity. And we have to ask ourselves that question. Am I really saved? Am I really in, in a viable, spiritually healthy relationship with God? And anyway, we also ask ourselves, doesn't it smack of self-righteousness for a person to say within, without any doubt in their mind whatsoever, I know that I am saved? And biblically speaking, let me go ahead and answer that question, no. The Bible tells us that that's not self-righteousness as long as our confidence and our trust is in the right place and the right person. If it's in ourselves and we've we really believe that we earn heaven because we've done enough good works, then, then we've got a problem. But if we understand that the righteousness is that of Christ that has been conferred to us when we touched his blood in the act of conversion and baptism, then the confidence is in the, in the right place. In the first three letters, this morning we talked about John and, and his uh, synoptic gospel tonight i want to talk about john and draw the lesson from his writings again but this time we're going to be turning to first john so be turning there in your bible if you will we're going to be looking at a number of passages and bear in mind that john was writing this letter as well as the other two to people who were already christians and one of the obvious purposes was to instill confidence in in their and and i believe two thousand years later in our salvation so understand that when he wrote his gospel account, as we talked about this morning, his, his purpose was to instill faith, belief, so that people could read that book and walk away from it saying, I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That is the Son of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah, who came into the world to redeem lost humanity from their sins. But when we read the letters of John, especially that very first one, John has a different agenda in mind. He has a different purpose in mind. And again, it's to instill spiritual confidence. I believe that there's really three approaches that we could take to this subject tonight of spiritual confidence. One is overconfidence. And I believe overconfidence can be particularly embodied in the doctrinal misconception, once saved, always saved. The doctrine of eternal security, it's sometimes been called, and that's the idea that once one becomes a Christian, there's absolutely nothing that you can do to ever lose your salvation, to forfeit your relationship to God, despite what the Bible says to the contrary in James 2, 20 through 22, 2 Peter chapter 2, rather, verses 20, 22, and Galatians 5, 4, where Paul is writing to the Galatian brethren, some of whom had fallen back into Judaism, and he says, you have fallen from grace. 
You can't get any clearer than that. But I believe that equally false is the other end of the extreme. And that may be the extreme, uh, the end of the spectrum that you and I are dealing more with in our lives, and that is underconfidence. We just really don't know how we stand with God. I believe somewhere in between is what John wants us to understand. And not only to understand cognitively, he's trying to get more than just head knowledge for us, but he, he wants us to really be able to implement this in our lives, to be able to, to deal with this in a very real and spiritually mature way. So let's just talk about a little bit of what John said. We're going to be drawing some isolated passages, but if you haven't read 1 John lately, folks, do yourself a favor as a child of God and read it before you go to bed tonight. It won't take but just a few minutes. What a confidence-instilling letter this is. Here's what John said, 1 John 5, verse 9. The first part of the verse says, If we receive the witness or the testimony of men, the witness of God is greater. So John is setting up the credibility of the word that he's about to write. And he's saying if there are people out there that can give us their testimony about spiritual realities and can be trusted, then how much more can God be trusted to give us the right information about our soul's salvation? And in verse 11 of the very same chapter, he continued that thought by saying this, actually verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's a line of, a clear line of demarcation that John is talking about. And you can know which side of that line you're on. And you can know whether or not you have the Son in your life, whether or not he is the Lord and the Master of your life, or whether, honestly, he isn't. And then he added in verse 13, check this out. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I love this next phrase because it really epitomizes everything that I'm trying to communicate tonight. He says that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Don't you love that? Or, or do you wrestle with that? That you may know that you have eternal life. I think that's something that we need to put in... Well, I started to say in one corner of our heart, we need to allow this to reside in every quadrant of our hearts, spiritually speaking, and to know that that kind of confidence and assurance can be given to us and it can be a part of our lives. Not overconfidence, but confidence. And there we have God's word on the matter. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that we're saved. And we can stop singing blessed assurance with our fingers crossed. But what about works? That's the question that comes to mind whenever we're discussing our confidence in God and knowing that the righteousness that Jesus has imputed on us and to us when we were converted and when we were baptized in the, in the act of baptism, Jesus' righteousness, we, we don't earn salvation, but he's conferred his righteousness to us. But then the Bible also talks about the fact that we do have to work for our salvation. So how does that square with knowing that with absolute 100% assurance that we're right with God? For example, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Paul said in Philippians 2 and verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul there was also writing to those who are already Christians. But he said, there's some work yet to be done. You've got to work out your own salvation, and it's no one's responsibility except yours. You see then how the demand is justified by works and not by faith alone, James 2.24. That's a passage that we're perhaps even more familiar with. 
But James is saying if you believe that just your cognitive faith alone will save you, you're wrong about that because works is a part of the equation as well. You've got to do what it is that God said to do. And and I believe in our, our day of spiritual laxity, we've lost a part of that, don't you? And that is we've forgotten how important obedience is. And even when we get to the last book of the Bible, it opens virtually with this statement in Revelation 2.10 where John is writing the, the very will and the word of God. And he said, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. But then we look at these passages and we say, but how faithful is faithful enough? And how many works do I have to accrue to garner the approval of God? You see, here we are back into questioning whether or not we are in a good place, spiritually speaking, if we are in a right relationship with God. Watch this very closely. Having confidence that Christ has saved me, past tense, certainly should not diminish my or your determination to work diligently at the job of living a good Christian life. Knowing that you are saved, that you are in a, in a good spot, that you are in a right, healthy relationship with God, does not make the true child of God sit back and say, okay, that's all I've got to do. There are no works that are required on my part. I don't have to know. No, the Bible says that if we understand that we have been saved, again, past tense, our sins have been washed away, that they have been swept away by the blood of Jesus Christ, by that by that powerful flood that that flowed down from the cross and covers our sins even 2,000 years later, it should, on the contrary, cause me and you to work even harder at living the Christian life the way that God would have us to live it. We work then, watch this carefully, here's a very important distinction, we work then not in order to be saved, not to earn our salvation, but because we have been saved. Our works are motivated by gratitude and not by a desire to pay a debt that's already been paid. And I hope we understand what I'm trying to communicate here. Listen to John again. This time, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. There's the obedience part of it, but also the confidence part of it. We can know that we know him. He's, he's doubling up on the language. It's a double affirmation to help us to understand that we can have spiritual confidence. One version of that reads, by this we may be sure that we know him. And that's really getting very close to what the original language was all about. So a real Christian is going to keep on obeying and keep on working and keep on growing. Allow me to illustrate it this way. In Psalm 1, which is a fantastic psalm, by the way, if you haven't read that recently, I'm giving you all kinds of reading assignments tonight, aren't I? But if you haven't read Psalm 1, do yourself a favor and read that as soon as you can. But you may remember that as he's describing the righteous man in that first psalm, down in verse 3 he says, and there's all kinds of windows of illustration that the psalmist used, but in verse 3 he said he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That's such a beautiful, poetic phrase to to use we've even written songs about it but that's the imagery that that the psalmist wants us to have he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water well if we really are like spiritual trees if that's what God wants to, to to think of us as think about that in terms of the analogy if you plant a young tree overnight you don't expect it to be a a giant full-grown tree in the morning You don't tell your kids if you plant a little sapling out in the yard, you know, tomorrow we're going to be able to hang a 
a, a tire swing off of one of the limbs. Or if it's a fruit tree, we're going to be able to pick fruit off of that by this time next week. You know better than that. You see, it takes a while. In fact, sometimes a long while for a tree to grow, even a tree that's been planted by the rivers of water. But you do expect it to be a tree the next morning. And you do expect it to grow, and if it didn't, you would know that something was wrong with that tree. Our problem comes, folks, when we want to throw an egg into the barnyard and listen to it crow. We're not, we're not waiting for the spiritual maturity part. We're not willing to wait for years in order to be able to attain spiritual growth. We want it overnight. We want to climb out of the Baptist tree one day and be elder material the next. That isn't the way it works. And so a part of what you and I have to do on a daily basis is to be patient with God who is working on us and in us, but also with ourselves to know that this is a lifelong construction project. I believe that's a huge part of his spiritual assurance that John is talking about in his first letter. Said another way, when a little seven-pound, four-ounce baby enters and blesses a home, you don't expect that baby to be six foot, 180 pounds by this time next month. But you do expect it to grow. And if it didn't grow, at least according to the standards that we use to determine how a child should be growing, you would be not only disappointed, but you would be very, very concerned. I think in a very similar way, when a person is born again spiritually and added to God's spiritual family, the Bible even refers to such people as babes in Christ. Isn't that a wonderful way to describe us when we're brand new Christians? They, we're babies in Christ. We're just infants, spiritually speaking, and we probably have no idea what, what life has in store for us as a child of God, at least at that point. But when we are brand new Christians, and we are babes in Christ, God doesn't expect us to become a fully mature Christian within 30 days, or even 30 months for that matter, but we are Christians, and we are in a spiritually secure relationship. John is building that case for us, and we're saved despite the fact that we're still immature, but we must grow or we'll die. And as we strive to live that Christian life faithfully, our, our minds, John says, should be at rest regarding our relationship to God. That you may know that you know him is what he writes. Because it's been promised by a God who cannot lie. Listen to his word again. This time, 1 John 2, verse 25. This is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. I hope... I pray that that will put a spring in your step. I hope that you'll be able to pillow your head tonight with a, a greater degree of blessed assurance than you woke up with this morning. L let me say just a word about the importance of being sure because that's, again, John's whole point. The Christian shouldn't have to live in fear and in doubt and lack of spiritual self-confidence. In fact, you may remember in his second letter in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 7, is where Paul said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love and, and, and power and a sound mind. So if we're living in fear and in doubt, we can know that we didn't get it from God. John had something to say about that too. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 17 and 18. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Verse 18, 
has been the subject of a lot of books and a lot of discussions. For there is no fear in love, but perfect or full-grown, complete love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears is not, has not been made perfect in love. And I, and I hope you got the, the phraseology there. Do you notice the phrase in verse 18 in particular, because fear involves torment? That isn't the way God wants his children to live. He wants us to be spiritually sensitive. And especially sensitive to sin in our lives and to work for the rest of our natural lives, overcoming that sin through the power of God that, that's within us. But by the same token, he doesn't want us cowering in, in the corner for fear that we'll do something wrong. He hasn't given us that spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and a spirit of love. John is telling us that God has promised us eternal life. But if we live in fear that we may not have it, and we're not real sure about whether or not we're saved, then we're showing a lack of confidence. Watch this carefully. In God's ability and power to save us. It's not so much questioning ourselves, folks. At some point, it gets to where we're questioning God. Can God really save me just as I am? And another thing, if I have no confidence in my salvation, how in the world am I ever going to be able to share the good news with other people? I mean, if my message is dotted with words like if, perhaps, and maybe, how in the world can I ever sell that to anybody else? Why would anyone want to enter a life of doubt and, and lack of spiritual confidence? Some people's version of Acts 2.38 would read like this, repent and be baptized and God just might save you. No, that's not the way the passage reads. And so we need to be very careful in our approach to this, this subject. And we have to remind ourselves periodically that the gospel really is the euangelion. It is the good news. And sometimes it comes off as if it's anything but good. And we, we talk about our obligations and our responsibilities. And again, those are all a part of growing as Christians. But that isn't the emphasis of the text in our lives, or at least it shouldn't be. We're focused and should be focused and motivated by the fact that we are God's children and heaven will be our home someday. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And if we really live that way, we'll be able to sing that song, I think, with a great deal more gusto than we sing it. It isn't good news if it's perpetually punctuated with fear and uncertainty about God's immutable promises. The good news is that Jesus died for me, that I have accepted that gift by my obedience to him, yes, there's something required on my part, and that he has then assured me of my salvation. And when I, with complete assurance, share that good news with someone else, I'm encouraging to make, for that person to make their salvation sure as well. In fact, the biblical terminology is make your calling and election sure. Can we do that? Well, some people don't think so. I can't, I can't talk about this passage or this theme without thinking about one of the most wonderful elderly veteran Christians that I have ever met in my life. When we were living in the Atlanta area, Sister B was always my Barnabas. She was always encouraging me. She passed away in her early 90s. But I was preaching on this subject when I was preaching over there in, in Atlanta. And, and Sister B came up to me after the, the service was over and said, I wish I could really believe that. And I said, you don't? She said, no. I said, you have no confidence that if you were to pass from this earth tonight that you'd go to heaven. She said, I guess I'll just have to wait till I get there, huh? 
That's not the way God wants us to live. He doesn't walk, want us walking on spiritual eggshells our entire lives with no real assurance that we are in a right relationship with God. Let me just say it like this. If somebody gave you a new car, you would not enjoy that new car very much if you spent all of your time worrying about whether you had a clear title to it. I know, and, and if maybe randomly some police officer should light you up, pull your over, you over, you have no documentation to prove that that's actually your car, and so you're just kind of driving around paranoid and, and in fear rather than confidence and gratitude that somebody gave you a brand-new car. You know, it's impossible to enjoy salvation if you constantly worry about whether or not you really have it. We've seen Jesus paid it all, but then we want to add and left us the payment book. That really is the theological stance of a lot of God's people, at least the ones I've talked to. So face it, if you've obeyed the Lord and you're walking in his steps, you have salvation. And you have eternal life as God's immutable promise to you. Once again, here's the way John stated it. This time, 1 John 2, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I hope you notice there's not a single if or maybe or perhaps anywhere in that statement. Knowing that they had obeyed Christ and that they were walking in the light, he assured them, your sins are forgiven. And that sin that has been forgiven is the only thing that will keep us out of heaven. Sure, there are obligations and responsibilities that attend the Christian life. There's no fooling ourselves about that. And John handled that issue in the very first chapter of his letter. Turn back to 1 John chapter 1. We're almost through. Look at two of the greatest verses in the Bible, at least in my estimation, verses 6 and 7. As he opens this letter, if we say that we have fellowship with him, here's, here's John's call to arms. Here's his reality check. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that is with the Lord, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we've got to make sure that we're actually practicing what we're professing. And listen to verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, literally keeps on cleansing us from all sin. That's John's assessment of our spiritual situation. Now, the Bible does come down hard on hypocrisy and pretense, and we already noted how that Jesus said, Not everybody that calls unto me and acknowledges me as Lord will enter heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. Matthew 7 and verse 21, Profession and practice, life and lips must always square with one another, or else we're just pretending. The person who calls Jesus Lord and yet intentionally walks face first, watch, watch me now, walks intentionally face first into sin shall not inherit the kingdom of God. was what Paul said in Galatians 5 and verse 21. But John is talking about people who are doing their dead level best to live the Christian life faithfully. And that I really believe in my heart of hearts describes most of the children of God that I know, not only in this place, but wherever I've been, preached and had a privilege of associating with God's people. He gives us that assurance. You may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, verse 13. So the question that we're asking tonight, and I repeat it here at the end of this study, is do you know if you're saved? There it is. Do you know if you're saved? And I mean, do you really, do you really know it? Do you have that spiritual confidence in your heart? And if you're not a Christian, you at least need to know how much God loves you. And that is no better stated anywhere in Scripture or any other place than John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that should positively prove one thing. 
God doesn't want you to be lost. He doesn't want a single individual to ever be lost in eternity. Back in the Old Testament days, God said, the soul that sins, it shall die. That's Ezekiel 18.20 if you want the Bible for it. On the New Testament side of things, Paul stated that same principle except in a little more modern terms when he said, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and verse 23. So I'm, I'm telling you tonight, if you're living without God, you're probably experiencing some emptiness and frustration and maybe some pretty heavy feelings of guilt right now in your life. Heard about a young college girl who was living immorally with her boyfriend out of wedlock. She was not yet impervious to her conscience voice. In fact, it was tearing her up inside. She had been raised better than that. She had been raised in a Christian home. She knew that she ought not to be living in that kind of relationship, and so she went to a Christian counselor, and she opened the first session with these words, I feel guilty. But you see, her problem, like that of countless other people, was not a guilt complex. It was real guilt. And she needed to be able to get rid of that guilt in the way that God himself has prescribed. But neither she nor you or anyone else has to continue living with that guilt and with that unhappiness and without that, with that fear. Because while the first part of Romans 6.23 does read, the wages of sin is death, you may remember that the second part reads, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We've got to read both sides of Romans 6.23 to get the whole truth of the matter. And that's some gift, isn't it? And it's yours for the taking. If you'll just be born of the water and the spirit as Jesus has prescribed. Peter in the very first gospel sermon ever presented described exactly how that takes place. And the passage we referenced a moment ago, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness or remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 verse 38 says. And, and that's how you accept God's gift of eternal life. I've already pointed out that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus paid those wages. He paid that sin debt when he died on the cross. And you and I and everybody in this world, whether they know it or not, when we touch that cross, when we contact that death, when we're washed in that blood, then we die to sin in repentance and in baptism. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 6, six described it this way. He said, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should be raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 and 4. And that should settle it in our minds. Jesus paid the premium on an eternal life insurance policy that has been given to every one of us if we're children of God. Some time ago, an elderly woman walked into an office where they sold off life insurance policies. And she was not there not to buy something. That's not usually a welcome sight in an insurance company office. But she was not there to buy a policy. She was there to cancel a policy. And the agent that she talked to was very polite about it. But he tried to persuade her not to cancel the policy because it was a very valuable policy worth several hundred thousand dollars. And her explanation was, well, I'd like to keep it because my husband took it out so long ago. But since he died, I'm not able to afford the premiums. And the agent said, but ma'am, this policy was on your husband's life. You don't have to pay any more premiums. We have to pay you. There are any number of Christians who are tired of paying for their sins in the coin of guilt and frustration and fear. When will we realize that the sin debt has already been paid? 
You see, when you claim your salvation by obedience, you have a whole new life ahead of you, a life that goes on even after we leave this world. And it begins this very day, this very moment, when you obey Christ and when you're added to his spiritual body, the church. And then it can be with blessed assurance that we sing about and we can sing, sing it with even greater fervor. And we can really appreciate the assurance of the text that was read a moment ago. I want to end with this. I hope this will not only be in your ears, but in your heart when you leave this place tonight. Again, one of the grandest, greatest, most important verses in all the Bible, Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And tonight, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you can be before you leave here while we stand and while we sing. cry of love and pity calleth turn and live